Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Christopher Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, and I'm here with Sean Gonsalves, the ILSR-CBN, which is Community Broadband Network's team, reporter, editor, extraordinaire, and what else do you do, Sean? The communications. Um, That's right, communications. And part of that, most recently, is a potential uh, Twitter refugee. Okay, all right. So th- I think this is going to run soon enough that we could just talk about this for a second. I did create a Mastodon account, but I haven't yet actually done anything with it. And I saw in particular, I was listening to a tech show, and and there was talk about how a bunch of people on Black Twitter were like, yes. no, we're not leaving. Like, we built this thing. We can't just, like, abandon this. It took years for us to build this up. That's right. That's right. Although I created a Mastodon account myself, and one of the first things that I did was do a search for hashtag black Twitter. Cause I saw a number of people on Twitter saying they were going there. Um, and then I also saw another site um, that I haven't looked at yet. That claims to be like, basically like black Twitter. I, I don't know much about it, but, um, but you're right. I mean, you know, some folks, you know, are keeping, you know, doing a dual citizenship, which I guess is what I'm doing at the moment. And I created a Mastodon account. Haven't done much. I'm still sort of trying to get my bearings. I think that's how a lot of us feel. And um, I don't know, I kind of created it thinking there was a like a small chance that I would really dig into it. And after what I'm seeing this week, I just feel like phew, Twitter's going down. <laughs> just like, I mean, I'm surprised it hasn't had more technical problems, but I just have no right. faith that this is even going to exist as a platform in two months. Like, I, I feel like that's a legitimate possibility now. Right. And as much as I complain about Twitter and as much as I love to hate Twitter, it's like, I really hope it survives. I almost <laughs> never complain about Twitter. I think Twitter's great if you follow the right people. I mean, yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. The ability to just be able to hear, like, you know, to see, like, what's going on with Harold Feld, what he's thinking about, you know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. just so many, so many people that I find inspiring and interesting, um, you know, people that I want to know what they're doing, um, you know, like, what, what have they written lately? Uh, it's, it's terrific. No, no doubt. No doubt. So I'm I'm actually really rooting for uh, whatever hope against hope that um, that Elon and, and company are able to pull this thing from the brink and, and keep the lights on. Yeah, I would suffer some more of the Elon lovers if um, if it meant we get to keep Twitter. You know, I don't I'm not invested in it failing to prove that he's awful. I already know that he's right. An awful exactly. Person. I, I, <laughs> yeah. Yep. I, I feel the same. I feel the same. All right. So today well, we're reviving once again, uh, crazy talk, um, mm-hmm. which is something that Lisa and I started back in the day. You and I had done a couple of episodes of, um, although I, I was thinking that we might rename it. Uh, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> so, and, and just to be clear, when we say crazy talk, do we mean our, <laughs> do we mean the stuff that we say? Oh, that's one of the things or the I, stuff that we come across that we think is crazy. There are certainly, there are certainly people who think a lot of what I say is crazy. Um, but it is responding not to the well formed and well crafted, opposition that we sometimes face where people are like, you know what, like, I don't know if cities should do this. And I, you know, like I want to put forth realistic evidence and that sort of thing. It's more the people who are like, even Chattanooga failed. And it's like, no, like, you don't, you don't know what you're talking about. Like, you're not even close. Like, you know, like it's not someone you can disagree with because it's just someone who's like a child that's just shouting incoherent things into a megaphone Mm -hmm. that the cable and telephone companies have put in front of their, their drooling little face. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is one that um, comes to us um, uh, from the Hill, 
an op-ed that we're going to respond to kind of paragraph by paragraph, I guess. Uh, Scott Walston, um, who is a PhD, and uh, it's very important because a lot of the people that um, the cable and telephone companies have employed over the years have impressive initials or, or abbreviations after their names that they have credible. They're very serious people. Mm-hmm. Um, Scott Walston has been someone who has long been on the side of the, the telephone companies in particular, I think. Um, usually cable and telephone companies, I think of them as. And it's uh, it's it's called There's Too Much Fiber in Our Broadband Diet. Um, we'll talk about different arguments made throughout this, but like this is one of those things that um, we keep hearing and we've been hearing for a long time. So... Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if you want to if you want to go first in terms of what do you think about the first few paragraphs? Like, how do you react to this argument that like um, that we're just too focused on fiber at a policy level? Right. So, well, the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, the first line talks about, you know, we've all been told to put more fiber in our diet. So the first thing as a writer playing on words of fiber in diet w- was appealing. I'll never I'll never do that again. Yeah, <laughs> you're burned. Yeah, this one, this one in particular, Scott Walston, maybe he's always been more at the wireless companies. I, I get these people confused. They're not worth spending a lot of time on. Um, but uh, but this is obviously like he's trying to just say that, like, fiber is going to be bad for rural America, like the focus on it. And and he starts off with this dumb. I'm I'm tired of it. Whenever you do sort of the fiber food additive, you know, fiber thing, like I, I'm I kind of cringe a little bit. I'll be honest. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad mm-hmm. you're not going to do it anymore. No, I'll never do it again. <laughs> <laughs> especially after this initially when i first started reading it it you know my first impression was this sounds very much like the i think it was what 13 senators that sent a letter to the ntia saying you know um you know there's too, essentially trying to make this case that there's too much the, the, that you know you there's too much focus on fiber it should you know that that fund should be expended in a, a tech technology neutral i think mm-hmm. is the term that they use um, so that's actually what it kind of reminded me of. So right away, it signaled to me that, you know, kind of, you know, where he was coming from. How old do you think that argument is? Well, even outside of broadband, you hear it all the time when it comes to government funding. Um, so, you know, I'm going to say a couple of decades. Yeah, often from people <laughs> that have crappy technology, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, that's who makes argument, right? It's like, it's like our, our technology is not as good. Not always. Like, there's good reasons to have this argument in in some ways. But this this chafes me and it chafes me something fierce because um, I just remember, and it's more than 10 years ago, I feel like, um, although it certainly reappeared uh, in the intervening time, particularly with FCC Commissioner O'Reilly during battles about the Connect America Fund and Connect America Fund 2 and stuff like that, where his, his line was always, why are we trying to build people a Cadillac when we could give them a Chevy? And and then, you know, they expended billions upon billions of dollars to get people Chevys and no one got a Chevy. Um, right. So like this is like there's just there's several things that like irritate me about the beginning of this. The first is this idea that Scott Walston gives a crap about anyone in rural America getting mm. decent Internet service. He does mm-hmm. not. If he did, he would be horrified at the way the telephone companies have misspent money that the FCC never should have given them to build better DSL out, right? That's That was the the technology neutral argument before was let's shovel money at AT&T and let's not pay attention to the technology because they know best. AT&T knows better than the government what people in Mississippi need, right? And people in Mississippi got nothing. <laughs> and AT&T right. got a quarter of a billion dollars. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's an inherently appealing argument. I mean, there's, you know, it plays on this idea that obviously, you know, private the private sector and private and the brilliant folks in the private industry just know more and better than these uh you know 
technocrats or the bureaucrats in government and, uh, you know, leave it up to the experts kind of a. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, though, is that like government sometimes has experts working for it. Right. I mean, that's what I am. Uh, it's what you are. It's what a lot of other folks are that have looked at this seriously and don't get enormous paychecks from companies that are trying to make billions of dollars while doing very little. And the thing that kills me about this is that if they had listened to us 10 years ago, we wouldn't be spending $42.5 billion today. We would be spending less because we would have built out good networks then. But instead, mm. we gave the money to the wrong people to build crap technology and we are now respending money on those households. Those households have gotten, you know, per household, hundreds or thousands of dollars to be upgraded in, in the last 10, 20 years. And those upgrades are not worth anything, right? Like it is not cutting the bill at all today. We are paying for those households in, 20, in 2005. We're paying for them in 2015. We're paying for them in 2025 because we're not picking the good technology uh, because we did not pick the good technology. Finally, we are. And those households are going to get a technology that will not need to be subsidized in 2035. But this guy wants them to be subsidized in 2035 again, right? Mm. Because the mm -hmm. market will be deciding in 2035 to do what to do with $100 billion we got to put into it next time. Right. It's like these guys, these guys come off as like being like, we got to be responsible with the public dollars. And I'm like, y'all are like spending the public dollars wastefully. Right, right. I mean, right off the bat, right in the second paragraph, you just talked about the that, you know, sort of this focus on fiber runs the risk of cost overruns and delayed build out but it's like i mean that that's true of anything mm -hmm. <laughs> of, of 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 any pro of any project there's always a risk of cost overruns and delayed build out so i don't i don't know why that he doesn't explain why that only relates to fiber bills yeah no i mean people in mississippi have been waiting for at this point some of them eight years maybe um you know certainly five six years for at&t to do its dsl build out that was supposed to be fast and uh, many of them they never got it so, so then he moves on to future proof. And this is another thing that gets my goat. Like, he's like, he's like, well, it's not future proof. Cause like in a million years, it probably won't be there. Right. Cause that's what you, when Sean, you love talking about future proof. I argue with you sometimes about how. Right. You right. I, I, I throw that word around a lot. You're right. But you know, right. But the idea that somehow something isn't future proof because it's not immortal or it won't last, you know, forever or into eternity is pretty ridiculous on the face of it. Yeah. You know, it's sort of like, you know, you know, you have to look at these things in comparison to in, in comparison to what. Right. Um, you know, so. So I guess in that sense, the, the term future proof does sort of invite those kind of um, criticisms for those who think that, you know, you're scoring points by pointing out that, well, not forever. It won't last for a million years or it won't last for, you know, 200 years. But, you know, the real question is, does it last longer than other that's actually the more more important question and and there isn't a real debate about that yeah no he talks about how like oh like fiber's got a shelf life of 25 years not really sure what shelf life has to do with it because like it's in the ground like <laughs> you know it's on the poles like he talks about how like things can happen with different temperatures and stuff like that and that's true but we also know that like a lot of that fiber that's out there is more than 25 years old um, I mean, at this point, it's 2022. It's nearly 2023, which boggles my mind. Yeah. But you know what that means? That means that the fiber that was put in the ground as part of the dot-com boom is 25 years old. Mm -hmm. It's still being used. So it's I guess tomorrow it has to be retired. Like, <laughs> <laughs> And so I just I, – I, I drive this nuts. But let's just assume for a second he was right. Okay, let's say it's 25 years. Let's compare the cost of building that 25-year network against whatever he wants to do with wireless in these areas. And let's compare uh -huh. 
the full life costs of that fiber network over 25 years versus the wireless cycle that he wants to use instead and see what's more economical. And, and I'm going to guess that in the vast majority of cases, fiber will be more economical than having to rebuild that wireless network between, um, I would say, over 25 years, you probably got, what, between four and seven network rebuilds, depending. Maybe people mm. might say that's aggressive. Like, maybe it's only, if you if you wait a real long time, maybe it's only, I think three years is hard to imagine. Like, I think you're rebuilding that network four times if it's wireless over uh, 25 years. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not mm-hmm. an expert. Maybe someone will, you know, unconnect this. Um, connect this, like, you know, well, maybe someone will come on and tell me that, uh, that I'm underestimating that. But I mean, this guy, like, I don't even think, first of all, I don't think Scott Walston knows anything about this technology. Like, you know, like he's just repeating stuff again, like, like a child. Um, but he gets over this and then he says, uh, that fiber to the premise happens to be the most expensive in time and labor intensive way to deliver connectivity. It's $40,000 per mile. Um, but um, you know, we could do fixed wireless or Starlink. Um, it's way more cost effective to connect rural Americans. Now, do you think that that in his home, when his ch- children are going to school, that he's on Starlink or fixed wireless? Yeah, absolutely not. I would not expect that he was. Most of the people who want to talk about how great those things are are themselves on a fiber network or a Doxis three one cable network in the Beltway. Right. They're not working from fixed wireless. They're certainly not on a fixed wireless network that doesn't work very well, which is sometimes the case. Uh, some of the fixed wireless networks are really great. Some of them are downright awful. Right. You know, too often these kind of arguments are made by folks in that situation where, you know, it's it inherently implies, you know, I've got what I need. And, uh, you know, for, for those who don't you know, you know, let, let, let's give them bargain basement type stuff and, and, and you know, and then kind of say, hey, it's good enough. Absolutely. And not just that, but ignoring the costs, right, of Starlink. It's a hundred bucks a month. It's a hundred bucks a month. It's maybe a hundred ten bucks a month now. Who knows what it's gonna be soon? Particularly with the pressures that, that's going on. I mean, who even knows if in a year Elon Musk companies exist in the way that they do today? Right. Like, right. There's a lot Well of and also, numbers. I mean, you say a hundred dollars a month, but that's after like what what isn't it? Like something like six hundred bucks to yeah, six hundred bucks to get started, and I and I think mm-hmm. that you know to to give this guy credit, he's probably saying that like, sure, you know, like over twenty five years, that's gonna be what's that gonna be like thirty thousand dollars? Because that's what mm-hmm. like one hundred ten bucks a month. That's like what thirteen hundred bucks a year. So I mean, you're looking at like without a startup cost and everything, uh, between twenty five and thirty thousand dollars. I mean, and even probably like I mean, if you're talking about twenty five years, inflation and whatnot. I mean, I'm not going to do the net present value calculation, but like you're looking at like on the order of thirty thousand dollars. Suddenly, I'm talking myself out of this. Like it's insane <laughs> to think that we should be subsidizing Starlink for that period of time. <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> dang, we got to get these people. I mean, you know what John Chambers charges on the the fiber networks he's building with all those rural electric co-ops? It's like sixty bucks a month. So I mean I guess the proper calculation is like is like what forty bucks a month difference of subsidy in theory, um, mm-hmm. you know, um, and so that's about a thousand dollars a year. Um, no, it's five hundred dollars a year. Sorry. So um, it's more like a ten, twenty, uh, ten to twelve thousand dollars subsidy over twenty five years. Um, still, that's that's a heck of a subsidy to be committing to, um, rather than just getting it done right. There are homes that will cost twenty, thirty thousand dollars to connect. They are few and far between. Most homes averaged out 
I mean, I haven't run the numbers on this, but I'm going to guess that we're looking at like 2,500. No, I think of like 35, four, four, 3,500 to 4,000 maybe, but like it could be down. Like I think 2,500 is more like suburbs. Um, right, right, right. Yeah. Yep. But like in the more rural areas, but you still like average together, like a lot of these in the electric footprints, I don't think you're looking at like an average of 10K. Um, you know, it will depend on where you are, maybe in Wyoming, but, um, but like, you know, South Carolina, your costs are, are not going to be like anywhere near that, um, you know, in rural areas, I don't think. And what, you know, see, here's the thing too. And I, and I, you know, I, I know that in writing these kind of op-ed things or whatever, there's always like space constraints you can't put in everything, but one of the sort of cardinal rules of, 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 of journalism, at least as, as I was taught it is, is, is the all important of context. And so when you're talking about where he says on on average, the cost of laying fiber is over 40,000 per mile, it would be nice to include the cost per mile is of building other kinds of infrastructure like bike paths or or roads or transmit, you know, electric transmission lines. And that happens a lot in the space when it comes to talking about fiber networks is that it's often discussed without putting in that all important context of how expensive things are for other types of infrastructure that no one ever says municipalities or cities or or should should not be building. Yes. So that's a terrific point. And I would just raise you one by saying the other cost that people never consider is what is the cost of these kids in rural areas or these kids in cities and suburbs who don't have an internet connection, whether that's because of infrastructure or whether that's because of affordability or some other issue. What is the cost to them for those, you know, what is our lifetime cost to children that are not well educated because they don't have opportunity? Right. And many of them, I shouldn't say many of them, some number of them will correctly recognize society doesn't care about them. And they will be like, mm -hmm. why should I care about society? And they're going to go off and engage in criminal enterprises, right? Like, right. I feel like exactly. a fair amount of that comes from people who are like, I got to get mine because nobody cares about me. No one's looking out for me. And when you grow up and you know that people have these like wonderful opportunities around you and you don't, it poisons your soul when we don't have that kind of that kind of equal access. Right. And it's so which is why it's sort of ironic or whatever that, you know, he talks about sort of the myopia focusing at, uh, on fiber. But there's this uh, there is a real myopia when you're doing sort of a cost benefit analysis the way he's laying out here that doesn't take into those those, those kind of factors that you're that you're pointing to. You know, it also strikes me now that I'm looking at this as well. You know, he spends a little bit of time talking about sort of the natural degradation of fiber networks over time. The, the real issue is, is not whether or not there's degradation over time or, or whether or not things need to be fixed down the road. The question is more, you know, a comparison of, well, that's also true of other networks. And what kind of degra degradation do you see in those other networks? And how much more expensive is it to fix in a comparative sense? Right. A real thrust of, I think, of this piece, too, is just talking about how costly and silly it, it it probably is to build out fiber particularly in rural communities you know he sort of says you know in more densely populated areas yes but in rural communities it's not really uh the, the way to go and it doesn't really work north dakota south dakota yeah is pretty well fiberized is, is my understanding am i right yeah so one of the one of the things that I feel like this presupposes is that NTIA is going to force people to use fiber but that's of course not how this is structured. States will be deciding a point at which um, where the cost per home is deemed to be too high, and that's going to be different in different states based on the state's uh, subjective uh, you know, decision about what, what is too much. At that point, they will be able to use other technologies. Um, 
And, you know, I feel like I'm one of those people that's often accused of being fiber only, and I'm not. Um, we talk about this frequently, and uh, on the Connect This show, uh, we um, we talk about how a sensible policy in some cases is certainly to build out fixed wireless to some areas um, in order to get them something quickly. Uh, this is what RS Fiber did in Minnesota, and I'm still very supportive of that approach. Uh, but I want that to be done by a company that is not going to milk that market. I want it mm -hmm. done by a company that will be responsive as their needs grow and as you have time and capacity to build fiber out to people, that that happens because that is fundamentally the the most um, uh, economically responsible decision if we're thinking about this over multiple decades. Mm -hmm. um, People like Scott Walston, I just feel like they're so focused on like what will keep the companies that support them, what will keep their stock price high over the next several years. They're not thinking right. about 20 or 30 years in the future. They don't care, you know, right. what's happening. And unfortunately, they don't really have to. I mean, especially the way this type, type of stuff works. The attention span on on sort of these kind of debates is very short. Yeah. I mean, I just I, I hesitate to think what the United States would look like today if if Scott Walston was the one who was like, ah, this Internet, this uh, interstate thing is a fad. Right. Um, <laughs> and, I, and I say that knowing that some people might be like, well, we could do with fewer interstates. Uh, I think that that's true. We are we are too much of a car culture. But it also supercharged our economy, right? Like we have a level of abundance uh, and, and, and it's changed the way we live our lives in ways that is good for rich people and poor people alike that I think I would not want to go back and rerun that experiment without it. I think we're good to have ability to travel. And, and I think government investment needs to be making long-term bets on improving the foundation of markets. And having high quality internet access out to everyone is a part of that, as opposed to these people who are like, eh, I think people should just get whatever some company decides they should get. And, right. you know, if that company's there first, cool, then they, they get that. And if some other company wants to come in, eh, maybe it'll happen and maybe it won't. Who knows? Right. But of course, you know, when you have a situation where there's only one provider, you know, the incentive is, is, is really like, all right, let's let's build the cheapest thing we can and charge as much as possible. I mean, and, you know, his piece doesn't take any of that kind of stuff into account, of course, because that, that's that's precisely where these things go. What's the cheapest thing to build and how and how can we extract as, as much from our subscribers as is possible? Yeah. And this is how he ends. Asking taxpayers to shoulder the risk of costly projects under the false premises that they are future-proof is irresponsible and could see Americans paying off debt far past the useful life span of the network they paid for. Well, that's just not happening. Even if it's 25 years, I, I think that we will have paid off this debt. Um, I worry about debt, seriously. Like I, I think we have to have tough conversations about taxpayer dollars. But those tough conversations need to respond to this idea. The only thing we should worry about is overspending. Um, we have lost the productivity of millions of children who don't have good internet access. We right. could have we could have built that ten years ago. We didn't. We spent billions of dollars, right? Tens of billions of dollars, arguably, inefficiently, in ways that Scott Walston tells us we should, and he never wants to reckon with that, right? Uh, he just wants to look forward and say, don't spend too much. Don't, you know, my clients over here, the, the big cable and telephone companies, the big wireless companies, um, boy, uh, it would be bad for them if you spend too much. So I'm going to come up with all these reasons why you shouldn't, but we're never going to talk about how many kids we're shortchanging, how we're shortchanging economic growth and innovation by not spending money on that stuff, right? 
Sean, you're a little bit older than I am. Like the space race, all this stuff. Like today, we are still living off of the innovations that came from public spending and an improvement in public schools because of the space race. Like, right. like you and I benefited from that. And like now our kids aren't. And But that kind of history um, is very rarely told and not well known. And, and so you can kind of make these kind of arguments in that vacuum, knowing that most people, you know, don't really have a sense of that. That's right. You know, which to me is what, you know, it's, it's sort of glaringly obvious, but it isn't. I mean, it only is obvious to, if, if you, you know, if you kind of follow this stuff. Right. And I, and I think, you know, like you said, I think a good op-ed includes the right context. <laughs> yes. <laughs> ab- context. Absolutely. Or, or at least to be, you know, it, you know, at least to be honest, like for, for me, the standard that I haven't always met for sure, but you know, there, there's this uh, John Stuart Mill quote, J.S. Mill quote, it says, he who knows only his own side of the case knows very little of that. And I used to always use that as a benchmark because I always feel like if, if an argument doesn't take into account or acknowledge the, the, the most articulate counter argument, then it's not really worth a whole lot. There's a level of, of dishonesty to me with in putting forward arguments that don't acknowledge the things that, you know, your most articulate opponent would would say immediately. Absolutely. It, it's not a sort of a final arbiter as to who's right or wrong, per se. But to me, I almost automatically discount arguments that don't take into account certain things that we've kind of brought up here in in our discussion here. It's like, come on, you can't really take it serious if if you're not at least honestly wrestling or acknowledging, you know, some of, some of these things. I mean, it's, it's possible to make a case for something without um, misrepresenting the actual case. Right. And I think this is where, when we talk about wireless, I want to be clear, wireless has been improving. Wireless will keep improving. There are going to be limits because of how we mismanage spectrum to preference Scott Walston's clients um, and his, you know, his, uh, I don't know if they're actually clients, I should say his uh, backers. And, and so it's not the case that wireless can't do a good job. Like there's a bunch of people out there who live in areas where wireless could do an okay job and it will work. It won't be as reliable. It won't be as fast. It will be more costly to operate over the longer term. Um, but there are a lot of other people who will be left behind when we're not committed to building fiber out who live on the wrong side of the hill, you know, or who can't afford 110 bucks a month for Starlink. Uh, you know, so I just feel like I get frustrated at these people because uh, we're trying to figure out what works best for everyone. And frankly, I am often thinking, I don't want to screw over the big companies. Like I do think to the extent they have put investments into places, like we should not just trample it without being, you know, thoughtlessly trample it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, That's fair. Mm-hmm. But like, it's an uneven playing field because I just feel like people like him are like hiding the ball constantly. And they don't want to talk about what the actual consequences of their policy are. Uh, you know, going another, you know, five years where we pretend that wireless is going to go out to all these places when it's not, uh, because he's not serious about policy. He's advocating for a few big companies that, that write big checks to nonprofits to advance those positions. Right. So much of what he's put out here is about sort of, you know, he spends some time talking about fiber networks don't really last that long kind of uh, an argument. And, you know, I, I would be interested to hear his response to, okay, so, so if, so if we have all this aging fiber out there, what do we replace it with? More fiber, right? I mean, yeah. well, that's one of the things too is that is that when the fiber comes due, 
this is something that um uh, you know one of our listeners of our work uh guy um uh, david asp at uh, dakota county um you know there's schools that 30 years ago put fiber in uh to connect their schools and they put it in conduit and systems in an intelligent way because they were thinking ahead the way often people who take this seriously engineers working for government do it right they did it and that that fiber is still working fine but this 12 strands and so he will go in sometimes on a weekend and they will shut it all down and they will pull the 12 strands out and they will put 144 back in. And this isn't like millions of dollars of investment, right? This is a couple of people pulling fiber through tubes uh, in order to give it another 25 or 30 years. And they do that not because that 12 strands have gone bad, but because they want more capacity and it's a very low cost upgrade. And the schools will then be able to do more things with it. And so, like, that's what happens after this 25-year mythical period in many cases, right? Now, it could be different if you're on poles and things like that. But, like, again, it's not going to be as expensive and it's not nearly as bad as, as he wants to suggest. So you mean nobody's no, nobody's ripping out conduit and fiber and replacing it with fixed wireless? <laughs> it, would be, it would be very rare for, for that to be happening. I mean, it's been four or five years, but every year people go to the Wispalooza show. And, and those folks are doing great work with wireless, but they're always shocked. They're like, a lot of people are just talking about fiber. And it's true because a lot of the WISPs are, are into fiber. Fiber is an important part of their business case, you know, and, and, and there's some people who want to use it as some kind of gotcha. And that's dumb. A lot of these WISPs are companies that care about their community and are trying to do something good. And they're using the technology that is available to them. Mm-hmm. And what I'm nervous about putting money into wireless is not because I don't like them. I, I like a lot of those guys. Some of them are terrible. Like, some of them are just really bad. Like, you know, uh, but most of them are, are good folks who are trying to do good work for their communities. And and the thing is, is that like when when we have a problem with like uh, um, uh, a neighborhood that's been disinvested in, you know, we don't say to that neighborhood, you should have more bake sales so you can build your own street, right? <laughs> we say right. this is civil infrastructure. This is important for the economy, for our entire country, for our entire state whatever right. and government mm-hmm. is supposed to come in you know like most of the economic um of the most of the economic activity in minnesota is in major cities right and like yet that money pays for roads all throughout the state and the state pays money into things that go back into the metro and stuff like that you know like we're in this together because like if we're not doing that if we're not building the right infrastructure then we're not going to be able to succeed and I feel like there are people who have said, I'm going to be, you know, be able to provide this level of wireless. And I think that's good enough for the community. And I don't want to tell them that they're bad people because they're not bad people. But I want to say it might be the wrong tool in some cases, given the need that we have to make sure that everyone has high quality access that works all the time, that is affordable. And, and that comes to that comes to uh, a head with our love of small businesses at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. But like infrastructure is infrastructure. Right. Um, you, we touched on it briefly, but it comes up a lot and it might be worth circling back on. Um, you know, in, in here, he talks about relying on low Earth orbit satellite providers like Starlink or fixed wireless um, that can be in connectivity, often far more cost effective and faster, faster ways of to connect rural Americans. Now, I have no experience with Starlink whatsoever. I've, you know, I've, I've heard from folks, some folks who have it, who love it. Um, I've heard from other folks who say, eh. um, we talked a little bit about the cost and, and, and how that is a real issue for folks who are financially strapped, but 
I like the way that you talk about Starlink and it might be worth mentioning because I do hear out in, you know, in different places where I may, you know, give a talk or something like that. It's often a question where the, there's this idea in people's head that that Starlink is the answer for rural America. Well, Elon Musk doesn't think it's the answer for rural America, right? I mean, like he knows a bit about it. Uh, his team doesn't think it's the answer for rural America. They're aiming at as many as 5% of the population. And if you have an isolated area where you have a high density of people, you can only get so much signal there uh, mm -hmm. based on the physics. And so there are real challenges with saying, we're just going to rely on Starlink. Now, you get you get isolated homes here and there. Absolutely. It might be $60,000. It might be $80,000. It could be more to bring a fiber connection. It might be tens of thousands of dollars to build towers to be able to do a wireless connection. That's a pretty good candidate for Starlink, right? Like, mm -hmm. there's a lot mm -hmm. of good candidates for Starlink, more than enough to, I think, pay the bills. Mm -hmm. But anyone who says that this is a general solution for rural America, well, not even the company thinks that. <laughs> right. Right. No, well put. So with that, we're going to have to cut it short. We're going to do another one of these before too long. Uh, if you think we we're, we beat this to death too much, you know, if you like this level of detail, I always feel free to let us know. Uh, you know, send us a send us a tweet or a toot if you can find us on Mastodon, and um, uh, you know, send us an email and uh, and we love to we love to get feedback, positive, constructive, whatever. That's right. Thank you, Sean. All right. Thank you. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ilsr.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. This was the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.